Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day. It is Thursday, and it is the 31st of October. For those of you, um, you know, keeping track, today is Halloween. It is also the day before All Saints Day or Reformation Day, depending on, uh, you know, how you're thinking about the calendar. So um, we're going we're gonna to talk about some Halloween-related things, but I think we better lead off this morning with a congrats to the Nats. Congrats to the Nats out there. Um, what does it say, if we were going to just pause for a moment and consider, what does it say that um, the Washington Nationals had a 1.5% chance of winning the World Series back when they were ni- when they started the season 19 and 31? I don't know. I just feel like, I just feel like this just gives great hope to uh, anybody who is thinking that they got a poor start to whatever, a poor start to the year, a poor start to a job, poor start to a season, a poor start to the day. If you got off on the wrong side of the bed, you can still redeem the day, right? The day can still be redeemed. I mean, we can't redeem it, but God can. And we are people who are living in, in and under, through and by the redemptive grace of God that we know in Jesus Christ. So good morning. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. I am operating today in the dark. It's very Halloween-y where I live today. The power went out about 4 a.m. And um, so I feel like I was probably the person who uh, most immediately notified the power company, but nobody actually answered. I talked to an automated service. They assure me that, you know, we have indicated that the address from which you are calling is out of power. And I'm thinking to myself, nobody's getting this message until sometime, you know, reasonable past sunrise. So uh, the sun has not risen where I am. And so I'm operating in the dark, which is always really fun. Uh, really, really fun. Feels very Halloweeny where I am right now. Okay. Um, so, but thanks be to God for battery power. That's what I'm. That's what I'm saying today. Um, and our little camping light, which I was able to find in the closet. I do want to also lift up some prayer concerns this morning. A little prayer update. Um, thank you for all of those who've been praying for our family and for Matthew this week. Please continue to do so. Uh, we're in a regular uh, hospital room now, and we'll probably be there until a I don't know a five or six day course of IV antibiotics you know, gets administered. So, um, you know, not the way I had planned to spend my week, but clearly an opportunity every single day to bear positive witness to Jesus Christ and bless people and receive the blessings of the uh, tremendous health care that we have available um, here in this country. So I just want to celebrate that this morning and thank God for it. We want to be joining our brother Tony Evans in prayer. He has he has asked really across all of his social media outlets. Tony Evans, uh, you will recognize his name. He's really, he's been on our show a few times, but he also has his own broadcast ministry. Really tremendous, powerful Christian voice in this generation. He has shared that his wife Lois needs him na- needs now a miracle in terms of her battle with cancer. Um, that the chemotherapy and the radiation uh, is no longer uh, an option. And so let's be praying with Tony Evans for a miracle in Lois's life, that the great physician would choose even now to reveal his power and his glory in her body, 
um, totally trusting, totally trusting that she's going to experience ultimate healing and being with the Lord forever, um, no matter how long this life persists. All right, it is Halloween, and to that we now turn our attention. When I come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Charles Ailing, former history chair at the University of Northwestern St. Paul, about the history tradition, history and traditions surrounding Halloween. All right, I am really excited now to have a conversation with Dr. Charles Ailing. He's the former history chair at the University of Northwestern at St. Paul, and we're going to talk all things Halloween. Dr. Ailing, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be here with you, Carmen. Okay, so I want you to imagine for just a moment, I have never experienced Halloween. I know nothing about it. Maybe I am, uh, I, I have just woken up from, I don't know, an eons long stupor. Introduce me to Halloween. All right. <clears throat> Halloween began um, from basic, basically three sources. First of all, the Druids, who are a Celtic group of priests in uh, England and other parts of uh, Northern Europe, and they had a harvest festival before uh, New Year's or before their New Year's Day, which is November first, and that was uh, October thirty-first, of course, which they called Samhain. Uh, you'd never know, by the way, how you spell that, uh, how you pronounce it from the way it's spelled. But uh, anyway, they celebrated a harvest festival um, and New Year's Eve, and the idea was that uh, the dead uh, relatives, the ancestors, could come back and walk the earth during that night. So they had a very superstitious belief about that. But that's one origin area of modern-day Halloween. Another is the Roman festival of Pomona. Now, Pomona was a Roman goddess, goddess of fruits and harvest. And this festival was sometime around uh, October 31st or November 1st. And so they celebrated a festival where they offered nuts and apples to the goddess. But uh, a major third area from which Halloween originated was the Roman Catholic holiday of All Saints Day. Now, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, as I'm sure our listeners know, uh, dedicates various days of the year to their saints. Well, they ran out of days for the number of saints that they had very early on. And so they decided to uh, set a day which would be for all saints in addition to the other days that they still kept. But this was November 1st, so All Saints Day was created. And All Saints Day um, started about uh, the 700s by Pope Gregory III, and the night before it was called All Hallows' Eve, or All Saints' Eve. And so that was a religious uh, celebration. So those are the three uh, areas of origin, or periods of origin, which have given us uh, modern-day Halloween. But in the Middle Ages, as we get up into the 1100s, the 1200s, the 1300s, um, witches uh, began to uh, celebrate uh, on this day. And also another day, uh, it, the day of October 31st for witches' uh, celebrations was in the English-speaking world mainly, but in the German part of uh, Europe, Walpurgis Night, which is April 30th, which is, if you look at your calendar, that's exactly the uh, opposite of Halloween. Uh, Walpurgis Night was a night where uh, witches uh, got together and celebrated witches' Sabbaths. Um, so this is how witches got to be associated uh, with Halloween. 
But I think uh, the origin of the customs of Halloween is also a really, really interesting uh, subject. Um, most of our customs in this country uh, date back to the British Isles, and uh, these customs mainly began in the 18th century and the early 19th century. Um, and uh, playing of games was a big, big thing uh, on Halloween night. And uh, the most common uh, game in the in the British Isles was bobbing for apples, which is still done uh, in uh, Halloween at Halloween parties. I've been to Halloween parties where they uh, did this um, because apples are in season, so people, people would bob for apples. And um, but other customs came from various different parts of the British Isles. Um, for example, Ireland has provided us with a lot of these customs. And, of course, as everyone knows, there was a tremendous amount of Irish uh, immigration uh, into the United States in the 19th century. And one of the things that the Irish did was they ate a, uh, uh, a kind of a mushy concoction on this night. And we don't know why, but it was called Colcannon. And this was uh, mashed potatoes mixed with uh, parsnips and chopped onions. Now, into the Calcanon, they put a coin, a thimble, a ring, and a doll, a little china doll. And uh, the person who uh, got this, while they were eating this, the, the, if they got the ring, uh, they would know who they were going to marry uh, within a year. And if they got the little uh, china doll, um, it meant that the person who found it would have children. And the thimble uh, meant that... Uh, uh, the, uh, the finder um, would uh, uh, would would uh, uh, well, I don't I don't remember what, what the symbol symbolizes, but the coin means the finder would get uh, rich. Um, I think I think the symbol I remember now the symbol meant you would never marry. So those oh, are the interesting. Four, yeah, those are the four things. Now, uh, as you can see, predictions about marriage were a huge part of this, and um, the idea is that. Uh, uh, young ladies would be particularly interested in this. And so um, young uh, unmarried ladies, young unmarried uh, girls were really big celebrants of, of this and eating the calcanon. Um, and they were blindfolded, by the way, when they would uh, uh, eat, uh, eat the calcanon. Now, Interesting. Yeah. Now, one of the, one of the things that uh, appeared in these years that is not very nice and which has maybe uh, kept on a little bit with Halloween is the, is the doing of pranks. Uh, going out in costumes and uh, uh, dressing up as, as members of the opposite sex or uh, dressing up as, as uh, witches or whatever and, and doing pranks. And that has unfortunately uh, survived to at least some degree, although hopefully less <laughs> than it was then. Uh, so all of these kinds of things from Ireland and from England all of these things um, did manage to come over here, as so many customs uh, did. Um, one thing that uh, our listeners need to remember is that virtually all of our holidays have some touch of the old world, some touch of paganism. I mean, even the days of the week. Uh, Sunday is the day of the sun god. Moon, uh, Monday is the day of the moon god. Tuesday is Tur, the war, war god. Uh, Wednesday is for Woden. Thursday for Thor, and so on. Um, so, uh, and, and Christmas uh, was uh, celebrated on the day of the Roman Saturnalia festival. And the big thing in the Saturnalia festival was the exchange of presents between people. Um, so, many, many, uh, almost all of our holidays have 
some uh, aspect of, of pagan origin. And I think mainly what uh, Christians did was to try to utilize these days and de-paganize them and, and make them uh, something different from what they originated. Uh, All right, I'm talking, well, we need to pause for just a second. I'm talking with Dr. Charles Ayling, the former history chair from the University of Northwestern St. Paul. We're talking about All Hallows' Eve, Halloween. Um, We may also get an opportunity to talk about the day after, which is All Saints' Day. I may ask him next about the way that all of this is practiced in Mexico, which is known as the Day of the Dead, and that has absolutely migrated north into the United States of America and may well be celebrated Today, right where you live. So we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Dr. Charles Ayling, former history chair of the University of Northwestern St. Paul. We're talking about Halloween, its origins, and the customs and practices related to it. Dr. Ayling, I have uh, a portion of my family that lives in Tucson, Arizona, And I will tell you that the celebration, it's now multi-day celebration of what is known as the Day of the Dead, um, which is really, I think, the way Halloween, All Saints Day, was practiced in Mexico as kind of a Catholic Spanish derivative of uh, of what was probably going on in Europe at the time. Uh, It is pervasive. It is a big deal. And it's troubling to me as a Christian Um, Because there is all of this, it's not just remembering and honoring those who have died. There is this sense that those people have some kind of ongoing uh, spiritual journey, and we can help them along with that. Talk with us about how, as Christians, um, maybe we, you know, put a a stake in the ground and say, "Um, I get that, but this is what it's really about. This is what All Saints Day is really about. This is maybe what we should be focused on in terms of redeeming Halloween today. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, And of course, we know biblically that uh, we cannot benefit uh, the dead uh, in any way um, on the uh, on the earth here, and I, I think yes, people will do that. And that that idea goes back in Europe many many uh, centuries. The idea that somehow people who have gone on into the next life can come back, particularly at this time of the year. Uh, and of course, that uh, view was uh, common among the pagan Romans as well. So it goes way, way back. And I think, yes, uh, as uh, Christians, we we do not believe that, and we should not. Uh, we 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 should turn our attention to other things. One thing that uh, I like to do, for example, is to uh, uh, when uh, the doorbell rings on Halloween night, it, I think it's a good chance to get to know your neighbors and their children, and to uh, cement better relations with our our neighbors. But uh, so, yes, I know that uh, there are parts of the world and uh, sadly, maybe in the United States as well, where this kind of idea has uh, has come in. Um, But I want to mention a couple of other uh, uh, aspects of uh, Halloween customs, uh, too. Um, The jack-o'-lantern, you know, how did that get involved? Well, uh, it comes from an old Irish, again, you can see the Irish connection here, an old Irish legend about a man who made a bargain with the, with the devil, uh, and uh, he uh, uh, wanted uh, to uh, be involved more forever through life, and so uh, this man, whose name was Jack, um, made a bargain with the devil in this regard, and um, he 
uh, actually, according to this story, which of course no human being can do, he imprisoned Satan, and uh, through this imprisoning, uh, he uh, kept the, the devil uh, from taking him uh, into hell. And uh, so uh, eventually he uh, furthered this uh, this uh, bargain with the devil, and he uh, it was eating a turnip at the time, and so uh, he made a, a bargain with the devil that he would not uh, imprison the devil or do anything to the devil again, uh, in return for which um, the devil would allow him to have a light in his turnip, and he would wander the earth forever with this lighted thing. And this is where the jack-o'-lantern idea of a pumpkin being carved out and a light uh, be put inside. So uh, that's how that story got started. Uh, but in the U.S., of course, masks and costumes began in the late 1800s, and we don't know for sure where this came from. Perhaps it came from the English custom called soul caking, where adults went from house to house begging for little cakes to honor their dead relatives. Um, and that may be the origin of it. That was not children, of course. That was uh, adults. Now, there's also an Irish custom where people went house to house demanding for money, demanding money, um, or demanding calves and sheep uh, in order to have a feast for All Saints' Day, because All Saints' Day was a big, big uh, festival, of course, in honor of people who had been sainted by the by the church. Um, and uh, the idea is generous people who gave them something to eat at this feast uh, would uh, have prosperity, but stingy people would have pranks uh, pulled upon them. And that's where the, the prank idea uh, came from. Um, I can remember uh, pranks uh, in my own neighborhood back in the days, you know, everybody had interior mailboxes, uh, not mailboxes that were out on the street someplace. And one of the favorite pranks in my neighborhood was after dark, uh, they would uh, come and if your garden hose was still outside, they would put it mm. in your mailbox and turn it on at a slow trickle. Uh, and many people had soaked carpets in the morning. We never had that. Uh, we took our hoses in. I remember my father doing that. But um, uh, these kinds of pranks uh, hopefully were a little bit beyond that uh, in this day and age. Now, another uh, source for all these things was Guy Fawkes Day, November 5th, um, when uh, Guy Fawkes had tried to blow up the British Parliament, and he had been caught at it, and he was executed. And uh, so on November 5th, people dressed up in costumes and went door to door uh, begging for a penny for Guy, a penny for the old Guy. Um, and uh, so uh, that idea perhaps had something to do with it. Um, but uh, basically, uh, today, most of this sort of thing has uh, died out. And basically, today, it's a children's holiday and a, a day when uh, uh, people go door to door uh, wanting, uh, wanting candy. Um, so those are some of the customs and uh, some, of the, uh, some of the practices that are connected with Halloween. And of course, uh, here in Minnesota, we have the famous Halloween parade and festival in Anoka, Minnesota, which is considered to be the biggest Halloween parade in the country. Wow. Okay. Now, see, there's something I didn't know. I also did not know I needed to bring my hose in on Halloween. So uh, I will be dutifully uh, going and doing that. Dr. Charles Ailing, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen, helping us understand the history and the background and some of the customs of Halloween. Happy. You're uh, I, this is when Paul is training me to not just say uh, Happy Halloween, but this is a whole season upon us of Happy Hallow Thanksmas. 
That sounds great How's to that? me. Hey, we, we might have to have you come back and talk about the pagan origins of other holidays and how those are redeemed by Christians. I thought that's a, that's a very stimulating thought. So thank you so much. Oh, you're entirely welcome. All right, we'll be right back. Okay, so maybe you're asking yourself today, uh, I'm a Christian, and so how do I, like, deal with Halloween? There are a wide spectrum of uh, opinions about this topic, uh, how, whether or not, in what ways people who are Christians can, should, or should not think about, engage in anything related to Halloween, and so uh, let's just start with this. Um, Halloween is, is not actually in the Bible. Um, and so whenever we're talking about something like Halloween, we are talking about applying the principles of Scripture to a particular issue of our day. And that is essential and critical. And that's the way Christians are supposed to be thinking about things, applying the mind of Christ to the matters of the day. So Ben Johnson is going gonna, is gonna to come up next. He and I are going to talk about Halloween. Obviously, it's a pagan holiday, but are there ways that Christians uh, can participate in it in ways that honor Jesus? Good question. And uh, and then he and I are also going to touch on some things related to impeachment. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ever have a moment when you've been stopped in your tracks by a statistic? Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Consider this. If you have a roof over your head, a meal on your table, you are richer than 93% of the world's population. And if you have just one pair of shoes, you have more than 75% of the people on earth. For me, these numbers really put things into perspective. Most of us have such material wealth, a home, a full pantry, a closet full of shoes, yet we often forget to be grateful for what we have. God says he will provide for all the things we need. But he also asks us to be humble and share what we have with others. So praise God for all he has provided. And be generous with your time, your talent, and your treasures. Doing so will help you live a life filled with contentment, confidence, and generosity. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent. This is my right. All right, joining me now, Ben Johnson. You can find what he is working on at blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. And we are going to talk in just a moment about his most recent piece, which is commemorating two genocides, Armenian and communist. Uh, that is a piece that Ben just posted yesterday at the Acton Institute Power blog. Again, you go to Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. This is actually a piece you're going to want to read in its entirety, and Ben and I are going to talk about it in just a minute. But first, we are going to circle back around to the topic of Halloween. You just heard uh, John Stone Street talk about it in in uh, in the in the little break point um, that that we had, and we've been talking this morning about the origins and traditions of Halloween. Ben, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good to be with you, Carmen. Good morning. And happy Hallow Thankmas. Yes, happy Hallow Thankmas. Or, yeah, I don't know. Paul might convince us to actually start adopting that language. I don't know. Okay. Um, 
I like the distinctiveness of each of the holidays. So I'm not really I am not really a fan of just mushing it all together. But I get I get I get it's a whole season. Okay. Likewise. Likewise. On this question, well, yeah, you and I would like more holidays, not fewer of them. So um, making things holy again. Let's remind one another what a holiday is really designed for, um, something that is supposed to be set apart as holy unto the Lord. And then let's talk about whether or not um, or how Christians can participate in obviously secular, um, but then also mm, obviously pagan things like Halloween. Well, it truly is, but I, I think that uh, this is a, a conversation we have to have about uh, all of our holidays. To some extent in America, the American celebration of all of our holidays, even the most secular, I should say even the most sacred ones, are uh, in fact pervaded with uh, with concepts that would lead us away from Christ. So Christmas, which is the birth of our Savior, where the Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, turns into uh, an orgy of um, of covetousness and uh, materialism. Thanksgiving turns into an opportunity for gluttony. Uh, likewise, as does Easter, the resurrection of our Lord, which uh, gives us life everlasting and triumph over death. So uh, there, there's some degree to which we have to to narrow all of these. Now, for most of those, uh, they have been sanctified, hallowed by church participation. Halloween, that's not uh, certainly not universally the case, to say the least. Uh, the way that I would look at Halloween, and I think that that conversation we had at the beginning of the hour was so historically illuminating— uh, one of the ways that I would look at it is an opportunity for education amongst ourselves. You know, Pew Research, which is uh, sort of the gold standard when it comes to understanding what American people or people around the world think, did a poll last year, and they found that one-third of evangelical Protestant Christians believe that psychics actually have the power to contact the dead. Uh, they believe that psychics, you know, they, they believe that uh, there is some truth in that. A quarter, more than a quarter, more than one in four uh, uh, Protestants and more than one in five, about one in five evangelicals believe in reincarnation. Uh, and then uh, a quarter of Protestants, again, uh, uh, one-fifth, uh, 18% of evangelicals believe that astrology is true. So this is this is an opportunity for us. And by the way, when you get outside of the evangelical world, uh, it's even worse. Actually, a higher percentage of Catholics than nuns believe in psychics. Uh, so so it's 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 really sort of concerning, uh, but uh, all in all, the 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 percentage of belief in new age beliefs pervades. So when Halloween comes up, I, I think that it's an opportunity for us to discuss what we actually believe about life, death, uh, about uh, the reality of of spiritual warfare. But then it's an opportunity for us uh, also to find out how we can sanctify a holiday and and uh, take a cultural observance. And if there are portions of it that we can participate in a wholesome manner, like churches uh, sometimes will, will have a trunk or treat or uh, uh, activities for Christians that obviously don't have any pagan connotations uh, in the way that they celebrate them, then it's it's an opportunity for us to find the ways to redeem our culture in uh, in Christian ways that uplift one another. So uh, Ben Matthew, who's my uh, who's the youngest in my house, um, he's my stepson, and he's in the hospital this week. And so uh, one of the things that is happening at at Vanderbilt this week is that each day there is um, 
something that you and I might regard as related to Halloween. To Yesterday, they did a reverse trick-or-treat. And so staff of the hospital got all dressed up in costumes. Um, kids could get costumes throughout the day uh, downstairs, and somebody had contributed all of those. They were brand new, you know, still in their packages. Just such a, just like a sweet thing. And then the staff actually came around last night, and if you had your costume on or in any way, like right, then mm-hmm. they brought you candy because the kids, you know, the kids can't get out of their hospital rooms really and, and do that. So they had this reverse <laughs> trick-or-treat. And so I was thinking mm-hmm. to myself, it was this gracious act of really like neighborly affection and love. It was an acknowledgement that kids are kids um, and nothing about it felt uh, evil or spooky. And and I think there are ways for us to um, to engage that are not a celebration of the evil that some will be celebrating tonight. And I do think that making that distinction is an important conversation. If folks are looking for a scripture text, the one I'm going to lift up is Romans 14, 5 and 6. It's really a conversation about what an individual considers sacred in terms of days. It says one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind, which means this is actually a conversation about your own personal discernment and your own heart and participation in things. So verse 6, he who regards one day as special uh, does so to the Lord. He who eats meat or eats it to the Lord or gives thanks to God, and he who abstains, well, he does so as well unto the Lord, giving thanks to God. So I think that um, my encouragement to listeners today is that whatever you do today or choose not to do, let's do it with charity towards others, and let's do so in a way that is neighborly and gracious. Um, Let's not be, uh, you know, screaming at kids, get off my lawn. (laughs) <laughs> Amen. And you know, I, I would amplify that with First uh, Timothy one eighty that uh, we know the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. So if even the law, if the Old Testament scripture has to be used lawfully, then uh, we have to handle everything in the culture in a lawful manner. And it really comes down to the intentions of the heart. If if you are going out to celebrate paganism, then obviously you're mm. using the holiday in a negative way. If you're not going out to use it in that way, it can be a, this sense of of neighborly affection. It can be a sense of caring, getting to know your neighbors. And, and providing them with something and, and fostering memories uh, that are positive for the children. And you might even slip in a, a little Christian message as well when you're handing out candy. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I dole out lifesavers. There you go. Okay, Amen. so, um, all right, when, let's take a brief break, because when uh, when we come back, I really would love for you to talk with us about the resolution passed by the U.S. Congress related to the uh, Armenian genocide and why this actually, you know, yesterday and the day before um, are dates that should be on our collective conscience in ways that, um, you know, frankly, we have more or less forgotten. So that conversation up next with Ben Johnson. You can read what we are about to talk about at Acton ACT. The piece is entitled Commemorating Two Genocides, Armenian and Communist. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. There's a ghost, there's a ghost inside of me, not like those dreams in old bed sheets, saying trick or treat. Returning to my conversation now with Ben Johnson. Uh, on social media, he's the rights writer, but the most efficient way to find what he is writing is to go to Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Uh, ben, let's talk about this piece you have uh, just posted yesterday, commemorating two genocides, Armenian and communist. Tell us what happened in uh, in in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, on, I think, night before last, the 29th. 
That's right. It was the 29th. The House passed House Resolution 296, which formally recognizes and condemns the Armenian genocide. The reason that's important is because of the use of the word genocide. Turkey has denied that the Armenian genocide ever took place. Now, that's ironic because the man who coined the term genocide, Raphael Lemkin, actually did so in order to describe what happened in Armenia. In Armenia, between 1915 and 1923, three-quarters of the Christian population of, Arme- of uh, what had at that time been the Ottoman Empire, modern-day Turkey, were killed. Most of them were murdered. Sometimes they were starved to death. They were taken on long marches through the desert and either worked to death or starved to death. In some cases, they were systematically murdered. Uh, there was a Christian missionary that uh, is quoted in a piece that we posted on uh, Acton uh, that, uh, in a publication that I edited called Religion and Liberty. Christian missionary working in Turkey at the time, in the summer of 1915, they would take 100 Armenians at a time, put them into uh, batches, and march them off into the desert, and they would force them to kneel in front uh, of a ditch, and then they would kill them with axes or with knives. That's the real Halloween nightmare, and it has gone unrecognized. They did this uh, just within the first week. They killed 1,200 people. So altogether, if you read what happened in the Armenian Genocide, it is incredibly well documented uh, that uh, we had we had our own diplomats at the time. For example, the U.S. ambassador to the Ottoman Empire in 1916, Abram Elkis, wrote that uh, the Ottoman Muslims were perpetrating an unchecked policy of extermination through starvation, exhaustion, and brutality of treatment hardly surpassed in Turkish history. So that, uh, that is so well-known and well-documented. Morgenthau, another of our ambassadors and diplomats in that area, uh, not only wrote back about what was happening and cabled uh, to the Wilson administration, but also uh, took pictures, which we still have to this day. It is a true nightmare, and yet uh, Armenia, which was arguably one of the very first Christian nations uh, converted by King Tiriades III in uh, in the year 301 A.D. by uh, Gregory the Illuminator, so it's it's been a, a long Christian history dominated by uh, by uh, Muslims and then, then the Ottoman Empire and now modern day Turkey. Uh, that entire area saw its history wiped out. To this day, Turkey denies that it was genocide. They say that at perhaps at most uh, a few hundred thousand people died and that it was just a mere byproduct of war. You hear the same sort of denial that you hear about the Holocaust, and the U.S. House of Representatives stepped up and acknowledged this truly was a deliberate genocide. Whatever their political motives might have been, uh, I'm glad that we are finally acknowledging the truth. This was an act of courage, and we should applaud it. So some of the statistics related to this are are hor- I mean, like generally horrifying. Um, 1.5 million Armenian Christians uh, exterminated, and we, we use the word Ottoman, we're talking here about the Islamic State that existed during that time period, and we use the word Ottoman Empire, that's what we're talking about. Um, we are talking about the last caliphate, uh, language that people are familiar with today because of uh, the de- the recent death of uh, Abu Bakr, uh, al-Baghdadi. Um, but we're also talking about, you know, that that represents three quarters of the Christians in Turkey at the time. Like we're talking about, you know, if you're going to look around in church on Sunday, we're talking about 75 percent of the people. Um, and of that, of you know, of that particular group of people. Um, and and when the numbers, we can't really get our minds around those numbers, but the pictures um, tell it all and are are genuinely uh, horrifying. So um, I, I'm like, 
I have this like grisly gratitude that you posted one of the pictures with the article. Uh, again, you guys can see that at uh, the Acton blog, acton.org. The piece is by Ben Johnson, com- commemorating two genocides, Armenian and communist. Let's talk about that second genocide, uh, because I don't think we often pause long and consider just how devastatingly horrible socialism uh, proved to be in the 20th century. The other celebration uh, took place yesterday. It's a commemoration every October 30th since 1991 is the Day of Remembrance of the Victims of Political Repressions. And that's specifically for people who were arrested, but more particularly those who were murdered uh, by the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or what we would call the Soviet Union. It goes back to a couple of people who were in the Gulag in 1974, uh, proclaimed a day for political prisoners, and they demanded additional rights. Since 91, we've remembered all those who were imprisoned. And in Moscow, they gather around a stone. It's it's known as the Solovetsky Stone. It was taken out of this ancient monastery that uh, the Soviets, the Bolsheviks, when they took over, converted into a gulag. So this stone is a reminder that's, uh, of the initial true purpose of that building is a building to worship Christ and of its abuse by uh, the communists. And uh, every day on the 29th, they will gather and read the names of those who were killed. On the 30th, they remember 20 million people, uh, minimum, who were murdered in the Soviet Union, probably about 18 to 20 million, who were killed in the gulag system, not to mention millions upon millions of political prisoners, all of whom were, were, um, were imprisoned by uh, the Soviet regime because they had, many of them were imprisoned for their faith, others were imprisoned. Uh, simply because although they were communists, they had some falling out with the maximum leader. When you have a state that is powerful enough that it can take everything that you have, uh, you have no means of defense uh, against the gulag system, against having intellectual prisoners, against political uh, uh, dissension becoming a capital crime. All of these things happen when the state eventually rears up its head to take the place of God. Those of us who are Christians today can kind of see this issue where you have Nuns on the rise, and the nuns become increasingly secular as time goes on. Uh, Those who have some spiritual belief, like we talked about in the previous segment, eventually lose most of their spiritual beliefs, polls show, and they are also more likely to have a favorable view of socialism or communism. Uh, To me, it goes back to that old quotation that when men cease to believe in God, they don't stop believing in anything. Uh, They don't believe in nothing, but rather they believe in anything. All right, we have um, we've got a couple of minutes, and so I I just I was kind of uh, I don't even know how to quite describe my reaction to the headline that Joe Biden, former vice president of the United States, now at least one of the leading candidates on the Democratic side for the nomination for the U.S. presidency next time around, um, was denied communion by a Catholic priest in South Carolina because of uh, Biden's very public views on abortion. Um, I, I don't know. Just give us your your over and under reaction to that. Well, uh, this is something that people have been calling on for uh, the Catholic Church to do for a very long time, uh, simply because it's officially part of their discipline. Uh, there are two canons which discuss this. Uh, there's a canon in Catholic canon law, which essentially says that those who are politicians who are promoting things that are contrary to uh, the Catholic understanding Uh, the Christian understanding, particularly of abortion, but of other items as well, who are in public manifest sin should not be communed by the church until they reconcile themselves on that point. 
There's also another document called Worthiness to Receive, which was written by a cardinal known as Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger. He went on to be Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, now Pope Emeritus, uh, Pope the retired Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, and it says very clearly. This is a quote, the church teaches abortion or euthanasia is a grave sin, uh, and uh, anyone who is taking, in, in the case of uh, it's an intrinsically just, unjust law, such as a law permitting abortion or euthanasia, it is never illicit to obey it. No moral issues have the same weight as abortion or euthanasia, and uh, if someone is formally cooperating or manifest, and this is a quote, his pastor should meet with him, instructing him about the church's teaching, informing him that he is not to present himself for Holy Communion till he brings an end to this objective situation of sin, warning him that otherwise he will be denied the Eucharist. So this is this is part of Catholic understanding and teaching. It's obviously not applied when it comes to people like Nancy Pelosi or the many pro-abortion Catholics who are uh, who are in Congress, and yet this is a very much uh, an intrinsic part of the Catholic dialogue. When when uh, Barbara Boxer a few years ago was citing Pope Francis and his teachings on the environment, which are just his, his own personal private opinions, uh, obviously she wasn't very keen about having, say, this actual teaching of the church be imposed. Mm. I think it's a stimulating conversation for us to have. You know, what do we say we believe versus uh, how do we actually live? And does the church retain its authority to deny us things like access to the sacraments? I would argue, yeah, they do. Um, Okay, so thank you, Ben Johnson, so much. As always, an illuminating conversation. Um, In your uh, Latin studies this week, uh, could you figure out how we make plural or multiple the concept of quid pro quo and then teach me next week how to say it? Because um, I think we might need that. I will do my very best. Thanks, man. All right. Uh, We'll talk to you. We'll talk to you later. That's Ben Johnson. You can find what he's writing at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. We'll be right back. All right. So we're going to be talking uh, next with Daniel Harrell. You may recognize his name as a pastor, but he is going to be the new editor in chief of Christianity Today. I thought it would be fun to touch base with him, find out a little bit more about him and the future of that important evangelical resource. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for joining us for the first hour. We got a whole nother hour, Oz Guinness, in uh, in the last half hour today. So thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.